Well, I'm excited to be joined by uh, some great researchers, explorers, authors, uh, conference lecturers, Hugh Newman and JJ Ainsworth. Thanks for joining me today. Nice to see you. Hi, Dee. How you doing? Hey, it's great to, great to have you back, Hugh, and I'm really excited to have JJ on. Never gotten to interview her, and I know you guys run together. You're always traveling the world. You're at all these ancient sites and uh, really putting out so much great content on your YouTube channel um, in various places. So really excited to just talk about a plethora of topics with you guys today. And I thought we could start with talking about, um, you know, this worldwide phenomena of the ancient handbags or purses, as some might call it. And JJ, maybe we can start with you, but kind of give us your initial thoughts on, on what might be happening and then what you've seen with this with all the different places around the world that appear to show these the ancients carrying these bag-like type uh, objects. Well, you're right. It is a mystery that's found around the world from Mexico to China, um, to Egypt, Assyria, all of that, um, and many more places. But I think the general thought is it's something to do with passing on knowledge, information, probably from a specific group of teachers. You know, different people might call them Nephilim or, you know, the, uh, the Anuna or some type of ancient god that's, you know, just mythologized now, but perhaps it was something that was real at one time. But the symbolism isn't, it's amazing. Um, and especially in like Assyria, um, they had a combination of that handbag with like a rosette and then a pine cone. And um, interestingly, you know, we found that sort of similar thing in Mexico as well. Even at Chichen Itza, there is um, a carving of a bird-headed deity with like an egg sort of pine cone shaped thing. And then you have Kukulkan there, which is, you know, the, the serpent deity Quetzalcoatl. And so it's almost like this ancient knowledge was passed on then spread. But, you know, for sure, we find it around the world and it, it is an amazing thing. And a lot of people have a different ideas about it, but I would say it definitely has to do with spreading knowledge. Um, also, we have in Egypt on the, which you mentioned before, um, the Temple of Isis, uh, Philae Island. Um, I think it's at Hadrian's sector of that temple. You find the god Happy encircled by a serpent. And it's almost the same depiction that we find um, in Mexico from the Olmec people, uh, Monument 19, um, where Quetzalcoatl, that's just what we're going to call him because we're not for sure, um, is sat inside a serpent, um, just like the deity Happy sat inside a serpent um, with ho holding a handbag, one of these mysterious handbags. Now, how do we get this symbolism so far uh, from from each other across the world? It's just almost unexplainable. Uh, mainstream archaeology doesn't really, you know, recognize it. Uh, but it's a complex set of ideas that, you know, just doesn't pop up out of nowhere. I mean, a handbag, serpent, bird, just the the magic of it or, you know, where it came from is just really, really odd and definitely a mystery that one everybody is really interested in. I think that's one of my favorite handbag, if we want to call it that, depictions, is what you called Monument 19 there. That is so fascinating and so 
clear, so precision. Yeah, he's surrounded by a serpent, right? But it almost looks like he has a spacesuit on, doesn't he, too? Yeah, it's, it looks like he's wearing a bit of gear for sure. Um, if you notice on his back, there's a fin. Um, I think I pointed this out in one of my videos. And it looks like he his mask or his gear is a bird bird mask. So what what I'm showing, you know, what I'm thinking that is showing that that deity has control of the air because of the flying serpent and the serpent for the ground, the fin for the water. So it's showing that this was a super powerful deity. Hugh, give us your take on this worldwide ancient handbag phenomenon. Yeah, I think the big question is what what, what is in it? I mean, no, no one's really kind of got their head around what could be in it. I mean, me and JJ have discussed this. Maybe there's some kind of offerings in there, uh, possibly psychotropics, sacred kind of uh, instruments and things like this. Others have suggested it's some kind of technology. You know, people have seen astronauts carrying, early astronauts carrying these kind of sort of bags, you know, which are attached to them. Uh, so they're claiming they're ancient astronauts. But in, in my, my, my opinion is that, that it seems like they, it's something very uh, sacred. You know, I think it's, uh, I think it is either seeds and grains where you're going to make offerings in a certain place to get them charged up by the energies at these sites, or it's a psychotropic, it's like a psychedelic kind of medicine. It's mushrooms, it's soma, it's some kind of vine, whatever it might be where these people come from, because they're very psychedelic imagery associated with them as well. I mean, you, you look at the kind of um, imagery of the Sumerians, and the Babylonians, and of the Olmecs, and we know the Olmecs were well into uh, different types of psilocybin mushroom they were well into uh, 5-MeO-DMT which is produced from uh, different variations of the Bufo marinus toad so things like this and so you have to kind of uh, you know question what were they what were they up to I mean they were clearly doing something very interesting there's also like people have claimed that the on pillar 43 at Gebekli Tepe the top section of that looks a bit like three bags three man bags as some people call them um but they no one's really sure if they are them or not but they look like them and so you know people have questioned is this where this kind of idea came from we know that at Quebecli Tepe and Karahan Tepe especially you have lots of like bowls and plates stone plates and containers made of stone that were small and large to collect things in um, so it could be an extension of that, but fundamentally, it's, I don't think anyone is really 100% sure, but I think uh, it's, it's very odd that it's found in so many different places. JJ, you mentioned the feathered serpent there at Chichen Itza, Quetzalcoatl, or Kukukan. Uh, let's take a minute and talk about this deity, because we see that kind of the Maya had their interpretation of this deity. It looks like the Inca had theirs. Uh, anything you want to share about what you know about the origins of this de deity, the uh, oral traditions related to it, and and why is it a feathered serpent of all things? Well, um, the origins of it come from, the, as we know, as the pristine, supposed pristine culture, the Olmec people. So, and they started about 1500 BC, but probably earlier. And that is what we call the depiction on Monument 19. So 
this deity is one of the most long lasting uh, from Mesoamerica, um, from the Olmec, Maya, uh, Toltec, Aztec. Um, it's just a power air, air deity. Like for, it changed over time. First, it was like for the air, the earth, and then became a vegetation deity later on. But it was the one that had the most um, respect from the people. We know this, like um, a Teotihuacan, um, there's a pyramid dedicated just to him. And he is in that in that form at Teotihuacan, um, you see the imagery of uh, Quetzalcoatl next to Tlaloc. So they were sort of intertwined together. And so that's the sort of vegetation aspect of Quetzalcoatl being associated with water, but definitely one of my favorite deities, a very wise deity, and probably the longest lasting from Mesoamerica. What 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 do you think? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and also North America, we get him, mm -hmm. we get it as well, represented in a serpent mound in Ohio, for instance, and uh, some of the legends up there. But you actually look at the early. Um, kind of antiquarian illustrations of serpent mouth and it's got like little kind of kind of wings like little plumes coming off its neck mm. and so this was clearly a plume serpent so you get it up there as well but yeah you also get you know there's the egyptian connection as well there's lots of imagery in when it's often talking about death and the duet 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 and it's like there's you have this symbol of this serpent all around it with these wings on it as well mm -hmm. and so i think ivan van sertima he was one of the first people to kind of propose um the plume serpent imagery was in egypt originally and it actually ended up through the olmecs because they came from egypt and so uh, this is how it kind of spread around mesoamerica but there's still a debate about that i mean you know, people question you know the connections there but but for sure i think uh I think that deity is super ancient, but I think, you know, it might, you know, it could be referencing something much older, you know, it could be much, much older. I mean, I've got, I mean, you look at the, the old Chinese, Neolithic Chinese traditions, you get similar imagery. Mm -hmm. JJ's looked into that. Um, I mean, you get the bird and the serpents at places like Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe as well. And I've got a theory, you know, that actually the uh, figure, the head, inside the pillar shrine or enclosure uh, ab at karahan tepe if you look at it from a directly overhead it looks like he's got wings coming off the side which connect with the kind of top part of the wall they look like wings in it from a certain angle so and then down his neck he's got scales like a kind of serpent and the serpent imagery actually inside the pillars and one of the pillars may actually be a rising serpent so there's a uh, possibilities that that kind of imagery that day that idea of a deity goes way way back well i mean also there's the myth of shamaran shamaran it's hard to pronounce of the snake uh deity with a human head and we know the snake um in at karahan tepe in the ab pit has an elongated neck but um so the story of that is it's a a healing sort of healing tradition um, where this snake deity lived inside of a cave and a human found its way inside and um, she they fell in love and she began teaching them healing properties and just the mysteries of life and this you know that makes really really good sense so it, it, it is like a Kurdish story if you go to like Shanley Urfa you're going to see that imagery all over the place 
like the hotel we stayed at, they were actually selling images and all over Martin as well. You can just buy any of the pieces like that. I think Andrew Collins has bought several. It's one of his favorite characters. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. You mentioned JJ, how that snake was connected to healing. Interesting that, you know, our modern day symbol for like hospitals is the snake on the cross, right? Which essentially comes from the Bible in, um, is it Exodus where, where God told Moses to lift up the serpent and have people stare at it? Um, any thoughts on the origins of this signature of the serpent and how it relates to what the Bible describes as this Lucifer creature in the garden? Do you think there's a connection with this worldwide phenomenon of the serpent everywhere? I mean, even I'm fascinated by these depictions in Peru you know, downtown Cusco, you see these serpents embedded into these megalithic walls. Any thoughts on all that? I know that's a rabbit trail, but. <laughs> uh, I can jump in first. There's, yeah, if you want to go way, yeah, you can go very far back and find the serpent. I mean, again, we just keep referring back to it. And JJ's t-shirt, Carahan Tepe and Gebekli Tepe have a lot of, a lot of serpent imagery very profoundly in fact but then one of the things we've been looking into we, we, we've actually written this article we published it yeah this uh, on um if you start looking into the sumerian myths and it, it seems like they were influenced by i we believe you know i think andrew believes that as well that from you know quebec Tepe, karahan Tepe era because they're talking about the same time i think and you look at the stories of enki for instance or Ea, or enki is the, the older name for him and, and enlil as well and ninhar sag in some in some cases their enki specifically is um often related to as a serpent as is ninhar sag in some stories um they're all slightly different so it's a bit confusing and we don't we don't really read or follow the Zachariah Sitchin version of it, by the way. We don't, we don't get into that. We, we kind of go to the traditional classical sources. Um, and because uh, that's been interpreted a bit oddly, we, we believe. But there is some very strange anomalous stuff there. But you look at the stories of Enki, one of his earliest symbols was him like a rise, rising kind of curved serpent, sometimes with a staff even, around, you know, wrapping around us kind of staff or even a stone, um, things like this. And so... Were they actually these Sumerian stories where they talk about Enki and, and these early gods? We believe they're referring to the time of Karahan Tepe and Gebekli Tepe, so nearly 12,000 years ago, because they talk about the beginning of agriculture. They talk about the beginning of um, uh, building, building basically building anything, construction, stone, stone monuments, things like this. And also they talk about... Um, different cataclysms as well which you can kind of almost pinpoint nowadays um and it seems to be they were talking about a much earlier epoch because you remember like the sumerians from us where we are now to the sumerians is the same as the sumerians were to Karahan Tepe and Gebekli Tepe. There's like six or 7,000 years in between. Um, and so there's uh there's a lot to consider about that but you also look at some of the old Vedic stories there's a lot of serpent imagery relating to that there's a big debate as to that you know did that even originate in southeast turkey now you have these vedic symbols like um 
we find on the back of the head at Navali Churi, we have a kind of Vedic priest ponytail carved in stone on the back of his head. You also got the Shiva Lingam type pillars, Karahan Tepe, one of them being a serpent as well. One of them looks like a serpent, plus the serpent on the neck, as you kind of see on the T-shirt here, actually. And, uh, and so, yeah, so you've got like um, a lot to, lot to consider. And I think it goes way, way back. Oh, yeah, for sure it does. I mean, the serpentine neck itself just shows that along with the imagery at Karahan Tepe and snakes are all over the place at Gobekli Tepe. Actually, at many of the Taz Tepler sites, if you're going to find snake imagery. But the healing aspect of it is really important because, for example, if we say, uh, if we take into consideration all of the snake symbolism that we find at the Taz Tepler sites, and then combine that with what else we know that's related to healing. So cup marks, we find cup marks, um, little scoops out of the stone, sometimes huge ones. Uh, and those are uh, thought to be related to healing. Um, Maria Gimbutis, a wonderful uh, archaeologist and writer um, that I have a lot of her books, I study her, she uh, followed the stories back and it relates to traditions that still go on today where um, they would, there'd be a scoop out of stones, special stones, and people would use that water from the rain that filled up to, for healing properties that would wipe it on their injuries, their eyes, um, things like that. And usually these stones are associated with females, always, hardly ever males. So that's one of the reasons, besides many others, I think that that serpent head in the AB pit at Karahan Tepe is female. Um, I'm pretty sure of it. And I think um, because we're co-authoring a book on it, that it will at least be able to show for sure that it's a fertility site, a fertility thing to do with healing, regeneration and, you know, the start of agriculture, some, you know, things like that going on. But definitely the snake is going to be one of the earliest symbols that you will find and still today very powerful. In religions like in the USA, they still do the snake charmers, snake handlers. It doesn't always work out for them, but they still do it. That's so cool. You're writing a book on Karahan Tepe. When is that supposed to come out? Quite a while yet. Um, yeah, we're just finishing up some other stuff, uh, but we're going to be cracking into that. Uh, I mean, I think we've written like quite a lot, quite a chunk of it already, to be honest with you. But yeah, probably in another year, I think we think, probably take a year to get it fully complete and published. Exciting. So you guys have been all over the world. You visited all these ancient sites. Um, when it comes to, you know, all these strange artifacts you've seen, and we've referenced many of them, do you have a favorite or um, aside from the ones we already mentioned, that Olmec uh, Monument 19, do you have a, a favorite artifact somewhere in Turkey or somewhere around the world that you just think is so bizarre uh, maybe it's one of these humanoid type looking um, artifacts. And so tell us what it might be and some oral traditions regarding it. I'd love to hear from both of you guys. I can, I don't, it's not one of my favorite artifacts, but I just wanted to talk about something that um, just popped in my head. We were in Bolivia and um, I think we were going to the site Chiripa along the coast of Lake Titicaca. And we, had to go through like this rigmarole to get a key to go into this museum. Like uh, the, the key holder had to walk like a mile from a village to bring us a key to get into this museum with no electricity. 
<laughs> it was it was just ri ridiculous. But once we got inside, oh my gosh, there were skulls in there that were they looked so strange. I think a couple of them looked even odder than like the Paracas ones. One of them mm. was just so I think I have on my Facebook somewhere. Um, if you look up Chiripa, you can see, but we've seen a lot of really strange artifacts. And that's probably one of the scariest ones I was confronted because it was just a little bit different, a little bit freakier than the really odd ones from, you know, the Paracas people that are hard to beat. What, <laughs> what, what, what city was this? This is Chir Chiripa is, uh, is a Tiwanaku era site, uh, not far from Tiwanaku really. Um, um, on the Bolivia side um, of Lake Titicaca, and it's actually older at, officially than Tiwanaku and Pumapunku. It's like 3000 BC, if you go by the official dating. Um, and so, yeah, that was an odd one because there was like no one there. We had to get a ride there with this this driver. You know, you can't rent a car anywhere or near there. It wasn't open. We got stranded there. So, we had to so find, did you guys get like, doors. so the, it sounds like the, um, Museum wasn't open to the public at the time, so did you get special permission to go in there? Did you know what was kind of in there? Is that why you wanted to go? Yeah, well, yeah. We, I kind of knew about the site, and we knew we kind of knew, but you know, it's not a case of like it wasn't open to the public. It was a case that no one ever visits there, and they were like surprised to see anyone there, you know. So uh, we had to go and hunt them down. We we found we knocked on a few doors in this in the nearby kind of village found the key holder and got in basically had it to ourselves literally for the whole time we were there but it's a really important site Chiripesk you know it's got huge megaliths in this square large kind of enclosure kind of almost like a bit like Tuanaku in some in some respects it's got beautiful statues in the museum and all these skulls very odd skulls in there very elongated extreme cradle boarding some of them didn't have the, the right sutras it was all a bit what the hell um but yeah that that was an odd place so you, you can so, go you can get to it but it, it's 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 not easy it's not easy i love it because you guys have seen a lot of you know ancient artifacts skulls so it, it must have been pretty bizarre jg for you to walk in and you're almost frightened by these skulls that you saw like describe them a little bit more so they're similar to paracas but a little different yeah, similar to Paracas, but so the the front of the skull sort of like came in uh, near the, the eye sockets and the eye sockets sort of expanded out. It just looked weird, almost like an insect type of thing. But, you know, you recognize it as looking like a human, but not at the same time. So the Paracas ones kind of mostly look the same. But if you, you if you put this skull next to them, there'll, there'll be some major difference because you're going to be what is this this isn't what we see you know elongated skulls are weird enough as is but what is this so yeah it's just a very odd place <laughs> in the in the area as well it's not not very far from where they found the fuente magna bowl which is um kind of three foot wide you probably know about this i'm sure some of your listeners uh, your viewers do but three or so foot wide they thought it was made of ceramic but it's actually made of uh, sandstone carved out of sandstone um, and inside it's on now, I think it's on display now in the uh, Bolivia Gold Museum or the museum there in La Paz. And uh, you can't photograph it or anything like that. But it's got what it is, it's got a load of Aymara script on it, which is a classic ancient Bolivian script. Um, Aymara people still kind of live in the area, the ancestors of them anyway. And then it's got 
proto-Sumerian and a type of Sumerian script. Like it's like a Rosetta Stone of South America. And this was found in the 1950s, you know, a few miles from Tiwanaku, a few miles from Chiripa. And, um, and the, if you're talking about interesting artifacts, that is one of the most interesting. I, we did some filming with ancient aliens for it when David Childress was over there with us. Um, and yes, it, it's never properly been kind of worked out. People are claiming that oh, it must be a fake can't be real but the fact that it was found in the 50s and it was used by um these pig farmers to feed their pigs from for about 20 years before that after they found it so it probably goes back to the 30s or the 20s so who would have come up with the idea to hoax something like what nearly a hundred years ago and put it there as a kind of little trick thing and, and put really elaborate very accurate script on it from three different kind of cultures it's very bizarre so that that is one of the most and, and around the rim of it actually around the top of it it's actually got a serpent kind of coiling around carved out of stone so eating its own tail like an ouroboros and all this other imagery and carvings and sort of heads and arms and hands sticking out of the side of it as well so that that was that general area as well so these very weird people with these weird skulls were creating artifacts like that probably thousands of years ago but that proves I think, without doubt, there was a connection between places like Tiwanaku and Pumapunku and the Middle East, you know. So how far back that goes really far. It could go back tens of thousands of years. It could go back a few thousand years. But certainly it goes back to the Sumerian era, which is around three or so thousand BC. I'm glad we got on this topic of Tiwanaku and Pumapunku. Such a fascinating um, place. And... Are these skulls that you guys were describing possibly related to the, the humanoid-looking statues that are seen there? Uh, tell us about these statues, the ones that kind of got the big eyes. Um, I'm blanking on what they're called, but give us a little bit back background about the oral traditions of that and how old those might be. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Yeah, there's um, yeah, you get like these kind of um, you get this in Guatemala and some Olmec sites as well. You get these kind of almost like goggle eyes on some of them. There's the the Ponce statue, or the Ponce statue, which is the big one. It's like 30, 40, 35 feet tall inside a little museum there. Um, I snuck into this secret part of the museum when we were back there in 2018 and photographed. I made a video about it actually. We, we actually spent about what 10 days there uh in staying in the the best hotel in town which is not not nice and um uh, the tiwanaku hotel they might have done it up by now um but there but there but what we also found what we found one of these statues well you know when, when i was walking about around the kind of far side of it i think the northern side um I spotted it when we did a tour there a couple of years before, but then we had time there. I went to investigate it, dug all around it, turned it over, and it was one of these Viracocha statues that had never been recorded because the grass had covered it up for hundreds of years. So that was quite fun. It was actually, I sent you the link to the video. People can check that out because uh, I wrote an article about it because we, we found all these artifacts in the museum that no one has seen before. I've never seen them we snuck in there when it was kind of not many people were around had a good look around there's like a storeroom there and they've they got dust all over them they haven't been out in the open ever so we were kind of blown away so yeah so you get a lot of those type of statues with the strange eyes with the kind of square faces um and these are the classic kind of they're very similar to the tiki statues you get throughout the pacific 
uh, even on Easter Island, you have similar, you know, there's, there's one crouching, kneeling statue, which has a similar look to it as well. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of odd connections around there. But whether that's a reference to them particular skulls, we're not sure. But, but you get similar statues like that at Chirapa as well, for sure, because it's the same kind of, just before Tiwanaku officially, even though there's a big debate about the, the age of all these sites now. The goggle eyes, well, that reminds me of the water deity Tlaloc. He's often shown with those big round eyes, almost like pools of water representing that. But... You, you get it with uh, you get it with uh, Quetzalcoatl as well, Kuku Klan. There's a lot of imagery in the uh, early Maya sites, uh, some of the Olmec sites, especially the ones in southern Guatemala, like La Democracia, um, and a few other sites down there that not many people know about. You get the same kind of thing there. So it's odd that you're finding that in Central or you know, North America and South America. Also at like Tiwanaku, the sunken temple, all of those faces that are on the walls, um, some of them look really, really odd, almost alien-like. Yeah, they've got big eyes and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, it's very unusual. It gives you a strange feeling when you're just looking at them, wondering what do these represent. Um but they definitely look like what we would say is alien. Just interesting. The whole place is interesting. Um, Hugh, you mentioned Guatemala. What do you guys know about these photographs that have surfaced of that supposed giant stone head that once existed that's kind of looking up into the sky? Do you believe that was uh, actually in existence and just, I guess, demolished by vandals years ago? I think another one you mean it's got a car sort of next to it, hasn't it? Yep. A couple of people standing around. I th I, unfortunately, I think that got proven to be a um, kind of someone got it made um, and it kind of got photographed. I, I don't know. So I, I'm not sure. I don't think it's genuinely super ancient, but it might be. I might, you know, no one knows because there's so few records from that era. But there are big stone heads in that part of southern Guatemala. Yep. Um, there's, um, I think a site was called uh, Monte Alto. I think it's Monte Alto. This is in southern Guatemala. There's an area called La Democracia. You can actually go there to this town square of a, a village called, or town called La Democracia, and it's actually got several large stone heads and Buddha-type seated figures mm -hmm. of these Olmec-type statues, which is, and they've got the big square eyes on them as well which is very odd. I, I had a good exploration of that way back like, when I was there in like 2009 or something. Um, and we are planning on going there because we've got a friend who lives down on Lake Atitlan. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff. And it's one of the most dangerous places in, in Central America. So uh, you have to get prepared a little bit if you're going to... I think Mark, Marco Vigato made it down there, but I think he kind of went with some locals. I mean, when I was there, we actually had to have, um, have a guy with uh, a gun just to kind of drive us about just in case. Wow. So, but that was a long time ago. It might, it might be, it might be nicer now. Those, Mar Marco survived. Yeah. yeah. Those statues have <laughs> magnetic properties, right? Yeah, they, they, yeah, they yeah, do. Which they, is interesting. They do. It's, so do some of the Olmec Om statues. The yeah. one, there's a couple in a, yeah, there's one at La Democracia that has a, I think it's in the right temple. It's got like a highly magnetic area. So they chose it for that purpose. And, and, when, and some of the other ones, the Buddha type statues, the magnetic um, uh, main point is in the kind of belly area, the navel. So, so uh, they definitely had an understanding of magnetism. Uh, JJ, I saw your photo you posted recently because you guys were in Israel, I think, not too long ago. And you are standing or uh, even laying on a stone by the um, 
the foundational walls there of the Western Wall. I'm blanking on what those that part is it the Kotel tunnels? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's interesting. If you want to go and visit those, you have to join a tour. But we did that. But we broke off from the tour and just stayed. <laughs> I don't think you're really supposed to do that. But we took yeah, advantage of our time there. <laughs> but that, yeah, that's one of Hugh's favorite stones, isn't it? Gosh, crazy. I mean, so, and yeah. it's more than that. It's more than that one. There are more. Yeah, there's a load of them. There's like five of them or something. Um, that one, I think, is what, 565 tons. They've worked it out as. There's one, there's, there's several, you know, if you actually go there, I do recommend it, but people do go there, go on the tour thing, you have to do it, and then just stay there. It's, they can go off and do their thing, and then you get it all to yourself. Um, but it's so big, you can't get it all in one mm. camera shot, you know, it's almost impossible. And this, you know, Baalbek kind of style, but there's several of them all the way down, and they know it's a different type of stone to what is found in the bedrock there. So it's come from somewhere else mm -hmm. that was must have been carried. Traditionally, it was like part of Solomon's temple, a temple mount. Um, Solomon was a you know brilliant architect, and his teams could move things like that. Apparently, um, but it seems like kind of super ancient. It's very bizarre. There's traditions of giants, obviously going way back in that area, specifically that area, uh, Jerusalem and so forth. Um, so yeah, so that they are they are very interesting stones because you got one there, then you got one which is about four hundred tons next to it, and you got one which is about three hundred tons next to it, you got another one which is about nearly five hundred tons again, and like but only people only talk about that one stone there, the five hundred and sixty five tonner, and there's more, you know, and uh, and if you actually walk about, you have, a, you have a look around, and if you we carefully scouted the whole area of Temple Mount, all the lower levels of it, you can kind of go on. To these archaeological areas there's gigantic blocks mega sized stuff there's almost you know it's definitely cyclopean but there's almost polygonal polygonal kind of shaping on some of them as well so this was clearly going on there because there's there's a whole bunch of other megalithic kind of sites that kind of proved that this was a popular pastime in um the ancient land of canaan the Wailing Wall, as they call it, is fascinating enough. Just the scene there and the stones there are big. But then you go behind there, and, and I think it's down below a bit, and you see what you just described, these massive 500-plus ton stones. Again, back when I was there, I didn't even realize what I was looking at. I didn't know what I know now. Um, but I do remember thinking, that's crazy big. Like, why is this one so big? You know, just my critical thinking back then. Um, but it sounds like you guys kind of walked, you were able to go uh, around more than just that one area and you saw other massive stones, right? Yeah, pretty big. Nothing like the size, not quite the size of that one, but certainly worthy of uh, checking out. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on there. There's lots of little hypergeum caves. Mm -hmm. There was channels cut into bedrock, uh, shaping and seating and kind of thrones almost carved out of the bedrock we'll be making some we'll probably put these all in our videos we filmed everything we just haven't got around to editing yet but yeah so it's, it's quite profound again it's it's just that whole kind of thing if you want to check stuff out properly you know you've got to get to these sites because you only hear you know if you didn't know you'd only think there was one of those mega sized stones in those tunnels you know but you actually go there and you realize oh there's loads of them they're everywhere. And it's exactly the same wall as the Wailing Wall. It is that same wall. 
it's just a bit further down and a bit lower mm-hmm. so it's, it's the same kind of construction although it could be much earlier in date yeah i just that that photo was one of the best i've seen jj with you right next to that stone because like you said it's so massive you can't get the whole thing in and so that was just the perfect shot of of jj with the stone showing the scale so i mean yeah it looks like it's very similar to the 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 stones there in lebanon i think they call it stone of the pregnant woman which is just massive so i think solomon built this what around is it like the 10th century bc it's supposedly this temple so my question is might he have built this on far older megalithic ruins yeah i think so it seems like that you know when you go there for sure i mean um there's stuff that's older there yeah i think i think you can't deny that when you start it's the same with baalbek as well people claim it's roman or earliest phases phoenician that's that's proving proven now but yes yeah, it seems like there's something super ancient there possibly even you know going back before the time of you know before the neolithic or the early neolithic it's, it's, it's hard to tell to be honest with you and even at the quarry where there's stone of the pregnant pregnant woman there's another larger stone yeah. just below it like to the that, to the yeah, left yeah. Like, yeah yeah and it's it's just crazy big and all of these places like that have almost mystical properties where you experience weird things that i never like to experience it always has a big effect on me when it happens because um, I'm one of those people that likes uh, rea- hard reality, like stuff that I can touch. But we often have strange experiences. It seems to go hand in hand with it. But inside the Temple Mount, inside this Holy of Holies, the kind of uh, the stone, you know, the main stone, you know, the what's it called? The rock, the Dome of the, the Rock. rock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, now, we, we, we couldn't get in there. They don't let anyone in unless you kind of... Um, religiously oriented yeah. and things like that i think it's controlled by uh, islam things like this now but that stone in there if you've seen photos of it it's mind-blowing because it looks like that's like the peak of the hill as such originally it would have been the peak of the hill but that is carved out like something you find in peru you know like something you find now at karahan tepe and places in Tastepola region of turkey it is hypergeum style carved out of rock and like you know, if that was in like Cusco or up on the hills above Cusco, it would just look in place there. It looked like it should be there. So what on earth is going on with that? And they claim that there's a square or rectangular chunk of it, which is where the Ark of the Covenant went on, and things like this. There's other areas that look like they're kind of seating. There's other areas that look like other kind of carvings, really beautifully done out of this solid rock. So you got that there as well, where you've got this almost like Peruvian style kind of a beautiful carved stone you know at the very peak the mo- that's the most sacred part of all the religions in the world there so so that says something that they're kind of worshiping megaliths i think and the-, the religion maybe abraham was supposed to have almost sacrificed isaac there and also um muhammad's night journey was supposed to have taken place there when he yeah, he, rose, yeah, he yeah. Rose, rose up to heaven, so he had a kind of mystical experience at that peak uh, mm-hmm. of, of uh, the hill, the mountain. So fascinating. Um, I want to ask you about two other spots there in Israel. 
you guys, I think, went to this the site called Gilgal Raphaim, where it has the Wheel of the Giants. Um, fascinating. Tell us, tell me about this. Tell me about your experience there. And do you think this might have been built by uh, Nephilim giants, i.e., Goliath, that the Bible describes? Well, Gilgal Raphaim, when you get there, it's a very odd thing to look at. It's a bunch of stones. Um, piled on top of each other. It actually looks like it's concentric circles. It looks like Atlantis or something like that, really made of stone. Um, but it's difficult to get to if you want to go see it. Um, on other either side of the road that we travel on, there's like um, wet, like weaponry, you get all these signs saying, be careful, sniper, whatever, fire for practicing military. So it's in a really odd place to begin with. And you have to hike like a, a mile or so, I think, to get there, a kilometer? Yeah, it's, it's a tough place. I mean, Israel's tough generally to get anywhere, to be honest with you. But there's, that one is, uh, that's well worth it. That's it well is. worth a visit. It's beautiful. It's next to the big uh, Sea of Galilee. It's mm -hmm. near there kind of thing. The Golan Heights. There's loads of dolmens in that whole area. Uh, and, and it's supposed to be Bashan. It's supposed to be like King Og's domain. You know, that, you know, if you're looking into the sort of biblical stuff, uh, apparently, you know, and so because that's so people have often thought all the dolmens related. You know, you're talking about the bed of Og. You know, certain dimensions. It actually relates to some of the dolmens up there. But also, uh, there's a huge kind of dolmen chamber in the middle of it, which you can go inside of. It's got strange energy in there, um, and then. Just next to it, just north of it, you've got this huge, what looks like a kind of curved wall, almost like a hill. And you send the drone up and it looks like a giant serpent, you know, like a serpent mound, like 10 times the size of the one in Ohio, but made of stone with a stone head and eye and things like this. Very odd. But yeah, so um, is that, that that area is supposed to be what we were discussing this earlier, what, about what, 4,500 some people say it's 4000 BC. Other people say it's about 2500 BC. Uh, no one really knows the date. It's, it's one of the most interesting sites in Israel, but it's completely ignored. No one go. I mean, we were there. No one went there yeah. the whole day. You get people driving by a four by fours, you know, just messing around. But man, you can't. It's unbelievable that sites like that are just left. You know, nothing's done. To I mean. Them. It's it's a beautiful site. It's precarious, though, when you want to climb it because the rocks are sort of just piled on top of each other. You know, some quite big, some not as big. So you're constantly trying to balance yourself. But once you go into the dolmen chamber, then you see the big lintel stone. There's there's quite a large stone inside of it. And like you said, it is a really weird atmosphere. It's just strange. And it's freezing cold inside yeah, there is the temperature just changes immediately and you're just like oh <laughs> so at the it's center nice of the, in there but you don't want to stay at the center of the concentric circles is a dolmen that sounds like that's featured and then so i mean the name gilgal Raphaim. we know Raphaim is what a transliteration or something of nephilim you know so again what the bible describes as these giants and then this the wheel of the giants. Where did that phrase come from? Is that part of the oral traditions of like the Hebrew, the Hebrews? Well, Gilgal is um, is traditionally. I think it's in a. I think that's a Hebrew word. I think uh, I'm not sure, but that is a traditional name for stone circles in um, that whole part of the world, ancient Canaan, Israel, and so forth, Palestine, all that area. 
they're mentioned in the Bible repeatedly. They talk about, you know, sort of some of the patriarchs involved in constructing these stone circles. So it really just means stone circle. So, but in some, you know, some places like, um, like you've got off the coast, Atlet Yim, for instance, Atlet Yam goes back 10,000 years. That is also like a subterranean semi-stone circle. That's a Gilgal, technically. But I think there's different names for it. Off the top of my head, I can't remember the different language names for it but they all generally point um one of them is to do with the to do with a um cat or some kind of uh, wild beast the name you know i think the, the muslim name for it perhaps so there's different i think the, the stones or the rocks of the cat things like this so there's different different names different variations but i think the fact that we're in the golan heights technically it's in syria you know technically now there's a sort of debate about that you don't want to upset the wrong people but you know when israel occupied the area officially that was actually syria before israel kind of occupied it so and they claim it still is syria so you're in this kind of gray area we're almost in syria which is really you started to get into the whole real biblical kind of uh super ancient civilization area JJ, is there anything you've done so much research into symbolism, ancient symbolism, anything um, that you've been researching lately that you're just excited about that you think people should know about? Maybe it's something from the past. It's just one of your favorite things you've stumbled upon. Anything else you want to share to wrap this up? Oh, yes. Um, so Gobekli Tepe and the tea pillars. <laughs> The T shape is such an important shape across the world. Um, for example, there it is, and it's uh, anthropomorphic, hu you know, humanoid. And I've done this research and followed clues showing that maybe we can say that these figures might be feminine or at least androgynous. And um, it's su such a, a worldwide figure. A lot of people don't know this. But in Mexico, the T-shape relates to the wind deity. And um, the, the, the shape, it's, I get so excited, I don't even want to. But doorways are found um, carved in this T-shape in North America, um, in China, uh, Mongolia, just all around the world. This, this shape is one of my favorite things to study. And a lot more information when our book comes out is going to, bring light to what I think it means and what it, you know, what it really shows. So that is my favorite thing right now with Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, that Probably. photo, um, I actually posted a photo on Megalithic Marvels of you standing beside one of these T-pillars. I think it was in an enclosure. Mm. That was, I mean, the scale of that photo shows how massive these T-pillars are. I mean, what's it like to stand next to that thing? Well, that photo you're talking about is actually a replica inside the Chandelier for Museum, but it's an accurate um, two-scale model. So even though it was a replica just standing inside of it, it, it is immense and it's amazing because when you're inside of it and you're looking up, you just can't, it, it's just unreal that the, our ancient ancestors built these and it's just unreal. Now, when you go to Gobekli Tepe and you, you can't go in the stones there, but even looking down at them, they're impressive. But the difference is getting to actually go stand in between them to realize how massive they are. So yeah, that I, if anybody's going to go to Turkey, I just 
really think you need to have that experience of going to Gobekli Tepe and then also the museum. So you can really, probably the museum first, actually, so you can get an idea of what you're looking at when you go to the site itself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you get you get a super superb sense of scale, uh, which you don't you don't can't, you can't, hard to appreciate. You know, even if you go to the site, it's still hard to appreciate the scale of it because you, you're quite you kind of far away. And you're looking down on it. There's, there's debris everywhere. Um, but yes, it's uh, same with Carahan Tepe as well. Hopefully, we think they're gonna. We've heard rumours they're gonna make reconstructions of parts of that as well, which would be impressive, especially the the pillar shrine, the AB pit, which is JJ's T-shirt there, and uh, and so that would be interesting to actually feel like you're inside it because that is. Um, it's very strange, very yeah. strange spot. Yeah. And I don't think people realize the size of that head. Like no, the head huge, is yeah. huge. Like this big. It's Slightly. yeah. But from outside of it, you can't really tell, but it is, it's just unbelievable. And just a few years before we were walking on top of it without yeah. even knowing. Yeah. This is it. We're just, you know, just walking over the top of it without just these little tops of pillars sticking out the ground. You posted a video recently of, um, on Crete, the Minotaur's uh, Labyrinth. I've always been fascinated by this subject. I've never got to visit this site, but tell us a little bit about what you uncovered visiting this site and the legends of the Minotaur in this uh, this labyrinth. Uh, Knossos is crazy cool place i mean it's not it's only one of many uh Phaistos as well was really interesting when they found the Phaistos disc um crete is a beautiful place to visit i mean but Knossos is i went there when i was a kid i went there when i was about 10 years old and i was sort of got really into the whole minotaur thing but that hill it's on uh which is uh, near heraklion is uh goes back to neolithic early neolithic possibly mesolithic times because it was a well-known area kind of thing but yeah, the fact that you got the Minoans building like what are classed as palaces, two in nearly two thousand BC is absolutely amazing. And yeah, the symbolism there, the serpents, a lot of serpents, a lot of the bull frescoes and other such things. But that was a really sort of really classy, if you if you like, uh, area compared to other places in the world at the time. Um, they've reconstructed, you know, bits of it. They have like red columns. Some of it's really beautiful. You can still see what the famous throne and libation ball there. Um, but unfortunately, you can't go into where the labyrinth would be located, supposedly. But you can stick your camera over and yeah. you can kind of look at the layers going down underneath. But, so yeah, but one of the things they found there, these are in the museum. You might have seen the photos with uh, they got these giant what are called called labyrinths. That's where the labyrinth name came from. There's these giant double axes um, with you know both sides axe heads kind of, and they are like what 10, 12 feet tall, so like fifteen feet tall. One of them, I think. And um, you know, if they're wielded by anybody, it's either the minotaur or it's giants. So you're saying they found actual double axe axe Seven. heads. That were so, found in the labyrinth. Yeah, that's where the name, the labyrinth name, comes from. Apparently, Labyrinth, which is um, the name of these kind of double axes. And funnily and, enough, the the labyrinth is also associated with butterflies. It's yeah. a butterfly symbolism. So it's like um, a death wielder and um, a life giver sort of symbolism, like a female thing. And this is part of Maria Gimbutis's research too, Lithuanian archaeologist. But so. Crete is full of amazing stuff like that. It's just 
unbelievable as well. Oh, and the, the original name of Crete is Megalonysos, which is one <laughs> oh. of my people. It's a very cool name, Megalonysos. Love it. Sounds like a dinosaur, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've seen some, I don't know if it was photos or I think a video, maybe before they closed it off, somebody got into this labyrinth. And I mean, it looked like, you know, it wasn't just tunnels. I mean, there were stones and it was, it looked like it was shaped. And for people who might not know, can you quickly tell us just kind of the legend of the, of the labyrinth and why it's, you know, with the bull, the minotaur? <laughs> so apparently, um, a, um, I don't know if it was a queen or some woman of importance, um, slept with a bull. This is basic, like this myth, I don't know that well, and had a child that was half man and half bull, and they kept it underneath the palace in the labyrinth. And there would be um, kids or, you know, different people brought in for sacrifice to go in and the minotaur would, you know, attack them. But that's basically what I know. <laughs> you just had your megalithomania conference where can people go to access all the videos and amazing presentations that uh, took place? Um, I think it was May 6th and 7th. Yeah, for sure. It's just all on megalithomania.co.uk. Um, also on the Megalithomania UK YouTube channel. There's all our stuff on there, our kind of tours to, to Turkey and places like that. They can, uh, the whole conference is filmed every year so people can, uh, register even after the conference and watch the whole thing or they can wait six to 12 months and we put them up slowly on YouTube. But if you want all the latest kind of information or the latest research, uh, we encourage people to kind of, um, you know, sign up for it and uh, check it out. Anything else you guys want to share as far as tours coming up, where you're going next, how people can uh, follow you, find you, follow your latest research? Sure. Yeah. Um, again, it's all on the website and everything. Uh, but yeah, ne next place we're heading out to Turkey, um, uh, very soon. And we're doing a tour there with Andrew Collins and our team out there. We've got like 25, 30 people coming. Uh, we're heading back there in September, but we're going more biblical. We're going to Eastern Turkey, like the kind of uh, Garden of Eden, traditional area, um, Lake Van and things like this. And there's some seriously strange Puma Punku style megalithic stuff mm -hmm. we're going to be checking out. So people can join us there. There's space on that tour, I think. A few few spots are open. But we do lots of stuff. As you know, we we get around. We kind of do uh, we're doing trips to Orkney, which is a place we're, we're fascinated by. And there's some news on Orkney. They're going to be covering over mm. and finishing after they finish the excavation of the Ness of Broadgarson. So we're rushing to get a couple of tours in there so people can at least see it before it gets covered over in 2024. Um, yeah, we, yeah, we do Egypt like like yourself. Uh, Egypt is just incredible. I mean, if people haven't been to Egypt, they, they've got to get there and see the serious, serious megaliths there. And uh, Hugh, you've written some books. JJ, do you got any book in the works? Yeah, with Hugh, Hugh right now. We're writing oh, about Karahen Tepe, so that. That's right. But JJ's, uh, yeah, she's not going to mention it herself, but JJ, you can check out. It's called Megalithic Maiden on YouTube and on various social media. She posts some cool videos. Um, 
about her research and travels there. So I should definitely check that out. And everybody follow JJ's um, Facebook page, I think is probably one of the premier places you post, right, JJ? Yes. She's got a great Facebook page with all kinds of photos and articles and stuff she's written. So uh, JJ, Hugh, thank you so much for your time. It was fascinating interview. Uh, excited to uh, spread the word about uh, all these ancient artifacts that we discussed. And um, we'll hopefully do this again in the near future. Thank you. Thanks, Dee. Megalithic Marvel.